Well, as some of you know, if you were with us last week, you know that we started a four-week new series that uh, out of the book of First Peter, we're going to, Connor and I are going to do that over the course of the next four weeks. And the title of our series is Ready or Not. And when I heard the title of that series, my mind filled in the blank. Ready, say it with me, ready or not, here I come. There you go. That's hide and seek, right? Ready or not, here I come. You count, 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 and you run. That's fun. Thing is, your grandkid, my grandkids want me to play that. I'm just a little too tired to play that. Um, and I'm probably a little big to hide too, I guess. But anyway, uh, Jesus says, ready or not, here I am coming. Doesn't he? He does. And so uh, Kondo kind of launched us last week. Awesome, wonderful message. We went through chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And I'll be sharing uh, the rest of chapter one. But before I do that, I wanted to, you know, as I thought about having an opportunity to share out of First Peter, I just couldn't help but think about Peter's life. What we know about Peter, and this is Peter, the disciple of Jesus, Peter, who became one of the apostles, Peter, who was one of the fathers of the Jerusalem, the very first church that was founded, Peter, who was overcome by the power of the spirit on the day of Pentecost and preached a gospel message where 3,000 people got saved that day. Peter was a fisherman who became an apostle, who became a preacher. Peter, the one who said, though all else forsake you, Lord, I will never forsake you. And then that very night he denied Jesus three times. And he repented and Jesus restored him. And so we are talking probably close to 30 years later as he pens his book that we call Second Peter. And it's a book where he is clearly knowing that he's going to die soon and he was martyred for his death, as many of you would know and have heard. That's what tradition and history tells us. But I think what's so fascinating to me is to think about Peter was such an eyewitness to so much of Jesus and of the early church. Sometimes if you're a, a fan of history, I am, I like history. And I like especially to read biographies. I can remember as a fourth grader going to the library and finding every book I could on Abraham Lincoln because I was fascinated with him. And just kind of when somebody comes out with a book, I'm a big Dietrich Bonhoeffer fan, by the way, too, and, and other people that I just love to see their story and hear their story. And especially if it's an autobiography, a, a biography by the individual or co-written with somebody else, it's kind of like an inside track, isn't it? Where you begin to see not just what others observe about an individual, but what the person says themselves. And so I think it's very profound as we look at the book of Second Peter, a book that this incredible person whom God used, who was a monumental failure at one point, but who God restored to use very powerfully, to see what's on his heart these last probably months of his life before he was martyred, before he was executed for his faith. So we're going to pick up in verse 12 of Second Peter chapter 1. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn there. And if you don't, it's also going to be up on the screen. Second Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. 
We read, so I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Let me give you a a little principle of good Bible study. There are occasionally words that are kind of trigger words, I call them, when you read them in Scripture that say, look at what just preceded. Sometimes, and, and usually when you see the word, therefore... Therefore, or in light of, or something like that, your mind should say, if you're a good student, what is this talking about? What just was being uh, spoken about? Well, in verse 12, we see the words, these things, these things. And that is a trigger to go back and see what Peter has already written in these first several verses of Second Peter. So what I want to do, it'll be up on the screen is just reread a few verses starting in verse 3 because it's so critical that when Peter talks about, I'm going to remind you, you need to remember these things that we know what he's talking about. Look at verse 3 with me. Peter writes, For his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Wow. Through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness, through, the, uh, through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. So I've highlighted a few of these phrases because they're just almost mind-blowing. The one in verse 3, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Really? That is incredible. He's given us salvation. We are children of God. He has filled us with his spirit. We have his power. He has given us his word, his perfect word, the word of God, to know how to live. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. I like to refer to that as no-excuse Christianity. No-excuse Christianity. We are not perfect and won't be perfect in this life, but God has equipped us, my dear friends, with what we need to live a consistently godly life. He has. He's given us the fact that we are his children. We are new creatures in Christ, we're called. He's given us his spirit. He's given us his word. He's given us a community of believers we call the body of Christ who are there to teach us and love us and instruct us and challenge us and encourage us and do all those things we do with each other. God set a high bar, my friends. It's a high bar. I've given you what you need for life and godliness. No excuse. Christianity. Is that a challenge or what? Oh my goodness. That's just, that's just such a challenge, but what God promises God will deliver. It's true. He will. 
So that's one of the phrases we see here. There's another beautiful phrase, incredible phrase, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. We have in some way the divine nature. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. She's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Paul would write, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. And this life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We're new in Christ. We have partaken of the divine nature. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. And some of you (laughs) are saying, wow, really? That is no excuse, Christianity. God has a high bar, but he's given us what we need. So I hope that doesn't just totally deflate and discourage you this morning. I hope that causes each one of us to say, I guess I better step up. I guess I I better begin to engage in these things. And Kondo did such a masterful job last week. If you didn't hear it, please, please listen to that sermon online. But Peter then goes on. And again, I want you to remember that Peter is probably in the last months of his life before he's going to be executed. And he's just just kind of sharing so much right out of his heart what he wants to say before he dies. And so he talks about these seven characteristics that need to be part of our pursuit in our life. He talks about godliness and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and mutual affection and goodness and love. He talks about those things. Now, I think what really struck me as I read these verses 12 to 15 is he uses these three words together. Remind, refresh, remember. I guess Peter was into alliteration too. Pretty good. Three R's. Remind, refresh, remember. Verse 12. So I will always remind you of these things. Verse 13. I think it is right to refresh your memory. Verse 15. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. I mean, in that short space of time, he's saying, you need to remember this, remember this, remember this. He's just kind of pounding away as this is so critically important. That's what he's telling us. Do you have people, do you have human reminders in your life? I mean, people who feel their calling and, and part of their role in life is to remind you of stuff. Like, don't forget your lunch when you go out to the bus. Don't per- forget to pick up Jake. You know, soccer practice over at 530. Come on, don't forget. And do you get like annoyed when these people always tell you not to forget stuff? I'm kind of using the parent thing, but the spouse thing is every bit as obnoxious. Okay, I'll just say. Because my wife was in the first service. She didn't hear that. What is your kind of defensive gut reaction when somebody is reminded of you of something that you will not forget? You just kind of get a little mad. Kind of get a little irritated. And sometimes that leads to not really pleasant marital moments. You know? Don't forget, don't forget, don't forget. Remember to, remember to, remember to all these reminders. And sometimes it can feel annoying until you realize you need them. Because maybe like me, I can be so oblivious. I use the term 
deep thinker. How's that for an incredible excuse? I'm so, honey, I'm such a deep thinker. I don't remember a lot of things. She's like, I've been married 40 years. That is a lame excuse. She does not buy that for a second. But this whole idea of being reminded and reminded and being told, remember. And Peter is doing that because this is so critical for us to remember. God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. That's what he's saying. You have the divine nature. You're a new creature. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the word of God. Come on. No excuses. No excuses. And don't forget it. Don't forget this stuff. It is crucial and foundational to everything in your walk with Christ. Don't forget these things. That's what he's telling us. You know, I've, uh, I've been around a while. I have been around a lot of Christians and leaders and all kinds of great stuff. And I'm so grateful for the life that I've been privileged to be, to be a part of in terms of ministry and, and a lot of things I've done. But I've been around a lot of Christians and sometimes Christian will be Christians will become reminiscent. And I don't mean that necessarily in a positive way when they use this phrase, you know, I used to, I used to get up early and have a quiet time. I used to do that. How was that? That was awesome because it was important to me. So it meant I got to bed at a good time. I said, that's awesome. And you know what? I used to serve in the church. We haven't done that for a couple of years, but I, I really used to serve in the church. And I'm like, oh, that's great. Did you say used to? Is that what you said? Yeah. Oh, okay. And I try to be nice. You know, I want to hear used to. But I, I, you know, I used to go to a Bible study. And I've heard people say, you know, I used to go to a Bible study really regularly. And you know what? They made us do homework. Seriously, the church makes you do homework? Like you have to go and read something before you come back? Or maybe even do a little studying? And I'd say, oh, wow, a church made you do that? Oh, yeah. How was that? It was awesome. I learned more than I've ever learned before about the Bible. Oh, so you used to do that, right? Yeah, I used to do that. Oh, okay. So here's my point. My point is that sometimes we get reminiscent about what we used to do, and those were some of the most profound, deep, wonderful growth times of our lives, right? And yet we've kind of drifted or we've stopped or we've made excuses. You know, Peter knows people. (laughs) Peter knows himself. That's why he says, I'm going to remind you. I'm going to refresh your memory. Remember these things. We need to be reminded of these things is what he's telling us. So my, my dear brothers and sisters, what did you used to do that was profound in your walk with Jesus that you quit? You know, I've had people say to me, you know, my wife and I just got really burdened for our unsaved neighbors. We have a lot of neighbors and, and they have kids like we do. And, and uh, I, I don't think some of them know Christ or go to church or whatever. You know, we should pray for them. We should reach out to them. Why did it stop? Or there are people at work who I get to know. In fact, I spend 40 hours a week in the same room, in the same office complex with these people. I see them at breaks. We go to lunch. And my heart has grown cold, if I'm being honest, with the fact that they don't know Christ. I used to pray. I used to care. What happened? What happened? That's why Peter says, remember, remember, remember. 
plug into your lifestyle the things that stir you to the priorities of God, the things that remind you what matters most to God. Put those into your life. Make those part of your lifestyle. That's his point. Not a used to. Used to do that. Used to do a lot of things. But not anymore. I pray that that's not your experience. And my friends, if it is, maybe today's a day to recommit. Recommit to doing the things. Just as the risen Lord told that church in Ephesus, remember in Revelation chapter 2, return to your first love. You do a lot of good things, but you've left your first love. Return to that. Get back to that, is his point. Okay, let me pick up in verse 16. Peter goes on to say, For we do not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory. I love that. Saying, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. So Peter's getting nostalgic here. Again, this is the end of his life. And he's talking about what I believe very strongly may have been, if not the, certainly one of the monumental moments of his life. We refer to it as the transfiguration of Christ. Many of you know that term, right? I'm going I'm to have us turn to Mark chapter 9. It'll be up on the screen as well. But this experience where Jesus began to glow, where his majesty was unveiled before Peter, James, and John. And the very voice of God the Father spoke from heaven. That's what Peter is remembering as he's talking to these believers and trying to get them to remember. Okay? So Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, that's Jesus, truly I tell you, Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly then they looked around. They no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Peter's saying, I want to tell you something, what I got to experience. I am an eyewitness of the majesty of Jesus Christ and the very voice of God the Father. I love verse 16. We are eyewitness of his majesty. Did you see verse 17? Peter refers to God the Father. This is his his title, the majestic glory. I love that. 
God's not referred to the majestic glory anywhere else in scripture. And it's almost like Peter saying, you know, I got to think of a new name for God. I mean, this experience was so mind-blowing, so life-altering, so incredibly powerful in my life. So he doesn't call him Papa, doesn't call him Daddy, he doesn't call him Father, he doesn't call him even Lord or Elohim or Jehovah God. He calls him the majestic glory. Isn't that incredible? And I have, I have thought, as I was studying this, I thought, is that who I think of the Father as? He is the majestic glory. And that's the voice that spoke from, he- spoke from heaven that Peter and James and John heard to authenticate that Jesus is his son and whom he is well pleased. Peter's saying, I was an eyewitness to this incredible Peter lived and walked with Jesus. Peter had a powerful ministry with thousands of people. He came to know Christ and love Christ. And he was forever marked by this eyewitness account that he experienced. And in this context, Kondo mentioned this last week, one of the big contexts of the book of 2 Peter, and by that I mean the reason why he wrote the book, a major reason was to combat false teachers that were among the people. False teachers infiltrated the first century church massively. So many of the books of Peter and the Apostle Paul are to combat false teaching, heresy, heretical teaching in the church. And so Peter is essentially saying, I was there, I lived it, I experienced it, I was an eyewitness to all of this. But then Peter shifts and he talks, and I love this so much. He talks about another kind of witness, the written witness to the greatness of God. Look at verse 19 with me. Peter goes on, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let me give you the bottom line of these verses. The origin of scripture is God. The author of scripture is God, not a human individual. He uses the phrase, it's not by a prophet's own interpretation. It doesn't have as its origin the human will. Did God speak through the personalities, the experiences, the writing style? of a variety of human authors, yes, but every single word, I want you to hear this, my friends, every single word originally given through the authors of Scripture was from God. God is the author of Scripture. 2 Timothy, great couple verses to memorize. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 7 say this, all Scripture, best translation, all Scripture is God-breathed. 
Some translations say inspired by God. That's not as powerful and weighty as the original Greek word, which is God breathed. All scripture is God breathed. God breathed out scripture and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I love that. Can God breathe out lies? Nope. Why? Because he's perfect. He's perfect. He's God himself. Because scripture is rooted in the very character of God. That's so essential. You know, it's interesting from time to time. Uh, people just, people blurt this out. It's so interesting. Well, you know, Chris, the Bible contradicts itself everywhere. And if I have a Bible with me, I say, can you show me? Can you point those out to me? I'd love to see where the Bible contradicts itself because I've been a pretty serious student for a long time and I don't see contradictions. Every word is from God. He's the author. He's the originator. And that's critical for us to know. I like, I'm kind of a fan of John Piper, not a groupie like some, but I like John Piper the things that he teaches, he, he shared this. I just thought it was so concise and good. The meaning of scripture does not come from the mind of the reader. Can I share with you, and I want you to hear my heart with this because I, I mean this very, very sincerely. I love, love, love people to do Bible study, personal Bible study, group Bible study. I do. I love the fact I do that we have small groups and we have missional communities and other people who open the word of God together. Praise God. That needs to be a huge part of what we do. But can I tell you a little bit of a concern and maybe more than a little bit, sometimes a big concern. We can tend to do Bible study without any preparation and say, so, so what does this verse mean to you? Okay. Well, what does this verse mean to you? Okay, what does this verse mean to you? And I might get three very different answers regarding the meaning of a verse or of a passage. You want to know why that's kind of concerning? Because there's only one meaning. There are many applications to Scripture. There are many ways that we can take the Word of God and apply it to our lives because we're so different and we live in different cultures and we live in different eras and different ages. And the Word of God is true since the days it, that it was written. But we need to be so careful, my friends. We need to be so careful that we don't just think, oh, I kind of think it means this as we take it through our 21st century Western American contemporary lenses for a book that portions were written almost 4,000 years ago. We need to be careful. Does that make sense? That's one of the reasons why some of us have invested a whole lot of our lives to actually study Hebrew and study Greek and study Bible backgrounds and study theology and study some of those things where we've really tried to dig in deeply to a text that was written at a certain time in a certain culture for a certain purpose. Every book has a specific purpose for why it was written. And so all I'm saying is please be a, a student of the word, but it's even better if you're a really serious student of the word of God. There's lots of tools and we can help you. Kondo and I and others of us can help point you to some tools to help you really understand as closely as we can what did the author mean when the author penned those words? Okay? 
So I just, I just want to encourage us that the meaning is from God, and we need to try our very best to discover what that is to the best of our ability. Our ability. We are limited. We are flawed. And some of who God is is so beyond our understanding. But he's given us this precious, incredible treasure called the Word of God. And we can learn a lot if we really devote ourselves to it. And I, I pray that you will. I pray that each one of us will. So that's one danger. I want to talk about two dangers. I just mentioned one. One danger is a very, very, very casual reading of Scripture, which is kind of like, okay, God, give me my verse for the day. You know, okay, there's my verse for the day. And it might be something really strange, like the old classic, you know, Jesus went out, or Judas went out and hung himself. You heard that one? And the person who flipped more and go ye and do that do that likewise or whatever it is, you know. We need to be careful about how we study scripture is my point. That's one danger. Let me talk about a different danger. And this is one that I'm also very passionate about. And that is the danger of purely studying. And especially if you're a person who loves to study and loves to discover and has a curious mind and find the Bible fascinating. We can study it like a history book. We can study it like a cultural book. We can study it in a way that we become fascinated with some of the details and some of the principles, and we completely miss its purpose. I want to introduce a term. Maybe some of you have heard it, but share a term with you. The term is bibliolatry. Bibliolatry. The word bibliolatry means the worship of the Bible. Or as some would say, it's the idolatry of the Bible. So if you even go to dictionary.com, I like to go there. It has a definition of bibliolatry. It's the the accusation of bibliolatry is that some Christians elevate the Bible to the point that it is equal with God. I like to say it's the fourth member of the Trinity. No. No. Or to the point that studying the Bible is more important than developing a personal and intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. You get what I'm saying? Bibliology, good word, bibliology is the study of the Bible. Bibliolatry is the worship of the Bible. Um. I'm going, to have, I'm going to have our team come on out. We're going to be sharing in communion t- today in just a little bit too. But I'm going to have them come out because I want to give you, a, give you an illustration of this. Um, I want you to imagine one of those beautiful World War II stories of a young soldier writing letters to his beloved wife each night before he goes to sleep. Some of you have heard these stories. These were real stories that occurred with many, many soldiers in World War II. And imagine her doing the same, writing him a letter every night before she went to bed. Undoubtedly, he would cherish those letters from her. I also want you to envision a picture that he had of his wife, a wonderful picture that he put right beside on his nightstand. And every night before he go to bed, he'd reread these love letters from his 
precious wife and he'd take his picture and say, I love you, honey, good night. And he would kiss the picture. I'm sure that happened with hundreds, if not thousands of soldiers. Well, the day comes when the war has ended and he gets on a ship and he is shipped back home to the United States. So here's what I want you to envision. I want you to envision him stepping off the ship and there's hundreds of people waiting for the soldiers. And it's almost like miraculously the crowd parts and there she is. There she is. Well, what's he going to do? He is going to run and embrace her and kiss her. And it's going to be this almost movie-like experience. But I want you to envision a different scenario. I want you to envision him seeing her and saying to himself, I have the letters. I have the picture. It's all good going to call a taxi. Here's my point, my dear friends. This is a means to an end. This is a book, not a person. This book points to the person of Jesus Christ. That's why we've been given this book. It's precious. The psalmist says it's sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. It is God's revelation to us in word, but Jesus is God's revelation to us as a person. And Jesus said, you study the scriptures because they speak of me. Some of you know, that know me a little bit, know that before I came and joined our staff here at Mission Point, I spent 16 years in theological academia. I did. I was a dean and professor at Grace Seminary, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed my time there and I'm grateful that God had that as part of my journey. But let me tell you, there's a real danger in theological scholarship. There's a real danger because there are people who can devote their entire lives to delving into biblical culture and backgrounds and never even know the person. There are people who are incredibly gifted in languages, who can study all the Middle Eastern languages, starting with uh, Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek and others, and can be brilliant in those areas, and can devote their lives to studying the scriptures and never see the person, and never know the person that the scriptures point to. That's bibliolatry. So I know some of you, like me, like to study the Bible. I do. But if I ever lose sight of the fact that the Bible is a means to an end, not an end in itself, that the Bible was given to us to point us to our Savior, who we are to love and be like, then, my friends, we have completely missed it. We've completely missed it. So my prayer for each one of us is to remind it yet that, yes, this word of God that we have been given is precious. And it's the primary way that God speaks to us and reveals himself to us. And we need to be serious students of it. But don't let Bible study be an end in itself. Make sure that the word of God causes you to love Jesus Christ more and more, to see his beauty, to see his glory through those words.